Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 40. We are up on top of the hill now. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the one doctor on this show, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. Happy New Year to you. Welcome to another year of Equinox podcasting. Yes! We have made almost a complete revolution around the sun, right? Is it a revolution around the sun or an orbit around the sun? Which is the right term? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Uh, We are orbiting the sun, but revolving in place. Yeah, I don't think you should call it a revolution, even though I know people have. Thank you, because I had a feeling about it. It was kind of iffy. I probably just made a giant scientific mistake. The first mistake of 2021 is probably now on air because you asked me a question I don't know the answer to. (laughs) (laughs) So these are true opinions and facts. (laughs) How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome to 2021. I'm so happy. No, I was happy. And then all of a sudden all the politics started. I don't want to talk about politics. I'm so depressed about politics right now. No. And honestly. Considering that we are in Georgia (laughs) and the Senate race in Georgia was so important. And oh, just the pressure has been on nonstop. Uh, For anyone outside of the state of Georgia, I wonder what your experience has been like on your phones because... For months now, we've been getting text messages about politics from random sources we've never heard of. All the ads on YouTube are about politicians. All the billboards. It's just the same things over and over again. And you said there's billboards too? Oh, yeah. All the- I haven't been on the interstate lately. Oh, well, I just came back from Florida uh, with my kids. We went all the way down to South Florida. It took us 11 hours to get home on Saturday just because it was raining and the traffic. but. All the billboards in Georgia driving towards Atlanta are all politics. Not all of them. Many (laughs) of them. Who else has money for advertising these days? Well, I am glad that that is behind us. Thank goodness we needed a vacation from politics. And I know a lot of things have been going on, but we do need a mental break. And that is what this podcast is all about. Rob. Sir. I'm excited to hear that you have been busy with something of a scientific nature lately that you've been pouring over, that you've been feasting your mind on, it got me thinking, here at the get-go, at the beginning of the year, a great subject would be to explore how does a professional, expert, experienced, knowledgeable scientist go about working on scientific research and result with a scientific paper they try to put out into the world? Cool question. It is a cool question. Because even if you weren't a scientist, I think you have a lot to learn from that method. And I'm thinking that a lot of our listeners would probably find your approach very fascinating. I agree. I think it's like, I don't know, what am I supposed to say here? (laughs) (laughs) In all due humility in the course of human events, what I do is amazing. Well, I agree. I think the whole scientific (laughs) process is fascinating. The way people approach learning, the way people approach writing the way you synthesize ideas and distill things down to the important bits and select what you're going to focus on and what you can ignore. Those are really important and it's hard and most people struggle with it. Yeah. All scientists struggle with it. This is the, the hardest thing about being a scientist is actually stopping and writing it down. Yeah. Because scientists are not scientific calculators. They're human beings. Yeah, but human beings who tend to cackle in the corner playing with their mice and they don't, you know, stop and actually write. That's that's a typical scientist. <laughs> it, you have to change gears. You have to switch hats. 
Um, you might be, you know, percolating something in a in a in a pot, or you might be looking at DNA on a screen, or you might be studying trees in a forest, and then you go back and you have to start typing. It's very different things. And so the whole time you're looking at your stuff, you need to be thinking, how am I going to write this up? What am I going to write? What do I need to know? What do I need to learn so that I can actually have a something I put down on paper? It's hard. Now, with your research, you're using the PC. You're usually doing your research from home, but you're processing a lot of information. And when you do experimentation, it's not like you got a laboratory chemicals and test tubes and you go in there wearing the you know, the latex gloves. Do they, do they still oh, wear latex yes. gloves? Or are they using some other? Well, there are different types of gloves depending on what chemical you're dealing with. Nitrile gloves, latex gloves. It depends on what you're doing. Oh, well then you're doing a lot of, I mean, have you ever worked in a laboratory like that? Like since your days when you were working on glowing in the dark fish, have you worked in a laboratory of that nature? My last laboratory work was around the year 2003, 2004. That's when we were making transgenic fish, getting the genes from corals into fish, making them bright green, bright red. I also had a coral laboratory uh, on the other side of the highway at the University of Miami, and uh, I was breaking corals, growing corals, measuring their growth rates and things like that. But I don't do wet chemistry anymore. I don't do gene sequencing anymore. I don't do laboratory work, and I'm happy because I wasn't a very good laboratory scientist. Oh. In, in genetics, there are several different ways to do genetics. You can be a DNA sequencer. You can be a statistician. You can be a, a theoretician. What I do is I, I do grunt work. You give me a data set and I'm going to crunch it and I'm going to split it. And I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to look at it this way and that way and some other way. And I'm going to say, oh, look at this. This is something no one's ever noticed before. You know, the average of this right here huh. is, is different. And therefore I can take that average and use that as part of the paper. And I tend to focus on human genetics. I've done over the little discord, and the discourse is, uh, I took a diversion into influenza work about 10 years ago, published a paper on that. Mm. And lately, this, this year especially, I've done a lot of work on COVID-19. It is the subject of the year. It is the subject of the year. And that's actually, um, that's also going to be the subject of this podcast. We're going to talk about how to take a data set and turn it into something publishable based on all the work that I've been doing over the last year. Now, I haven't come up with anything publishable, but I've come up with a lot of information that other people don't necessarily know. And my colleague and I, we're going to write it up for the creationist community. Or we might even put it on a um, like, like bioarchive, uh, a preprint server, without a real expectation that it's going to be picked up and published in a, in a secular journal. Because we're going to put our ideas into this, and our ideas are not evolutionary. And they're not going to like that. But it's still going to be a final product, and it's still going to be a fun read. So who are you working on the project with? Well, my main uh, collaborator is Dr. John Sanford, the inventor of the gene gun, the person who was the first person to ever genetically modify a plant. And the reason that it's so hard to modify plants is because seeds are hard. And he figured out that if you take microscopic gold beads and soak them in DNA solution and load them into the cartridge of a 22 short and go, blam! You can shoot gold particles into seeds and the DNA strips off on the inside and now you have just genetically modified a plant. That's called the gene gun. <laughs> That's a pretty remarkable discovery. I don't know that I would have tried well, it. That, it. It was brilliant, but that is literally the gene gun is a gun. And his invention was world famous and he got patents and he got papers and he got books and tons, I mean, tons of publications out of it. 
and he was at Cornell. Cornell was very happy that he was there, but then he became a creationist and Cornell soured. <laughs> but he is happily retired now. Uh, no and surprise working there. On tons of tons of projects. He's busy with all sorts of different things. But he and I work a lot together on human genetics, on biblical history, and for a long time this year, COVID nineteen. So, what is the angle, and what are you? What I mean, are y'all specifically expecting to discover things related to your genetics research of the past that? you can glean from this as an example? Yes. yes. Or is there something more well, to it? Our, our project that we did uh, several years ago was on the H1N1 influenza virus. The 2009-2010 uh, uh, swine flu scare started us, and about three years later we had a paper out. It got published in, uh, I think, Nucleic Acids Research. It's a good paper, lots of downloads, lots of people have read it. And basically what we said was um, this virus cannot escape natural selection. The mutations are building up in this virus inexorably. And we put it on a, a chart. We, we took all the virus sequences that we had going all the way back to 1918 because somebody dug up a woman buried in Alaska who died of the flu in 1918. They sequenced the flu genome out of her body. And since we had a zero point, we took all the other flu viruses from the 1930s and 40s and 50s all the way up to the 2009, 2010, actually 2012 by the time we were done, and we put them on a graph and we just counted up the number of mutations, and it was a straight line going up and up and up and up and up every year. And then in 2009, the 1918 version went extinct after about 13% of his genome mutated. So what was the tipping point that caused 13% to go extinct? Or was that part of the gradual process well, over When the about 13% of his genome had mutated randomly, that's when it went extinct. It couldn't survive anymore. It had rusted out. So many little defects had accumulated that it couldn't compete with other flu viruses, and just it just went away. Okay, so it's sort of like it had so many micro handicaps, it yeah. just was unsustainable for life. It would be like if you're driving a car for 100 years, your car will fall apart. It's going to turn into a pile of rust. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You cannot drive a car that long. It's going to rust out. And that's what happened to the flu genome of that particular strain. This is a confirmation of a lot of theory, the confirmation of some computer simulations. And when we actually put it down on paper, we, we saw it. And this, it, it, this is this thing called genetic entropy, which is John Sanford's brainchild. And we saw it here in the flu. So we said, when the coronavirus came out, well, here we have a brand new virus. We have a beginning point. We have, um, I have 19,000 genomes of the coronavirus on my laptop. And that's just the ones I've gotten through September. I could probably do it again and get a whole lot more. Wow. I've been charting this. I've been doing lots of statistics. I've been watching the mutations over time build up in this, this, this viral population. And we can see that it is getting more and more mutated over time. It's only been a year, though. And the, the, each virus doesn't have a lot of mutations. It might have 20 mutations from you know, a year ago, December, when it first started. That's not a lot of mutations. Okay, because I was about to ask if you could determine like a rate of mutation. Oh, yes, we know the rate of mutation. It's 20 to 25 mutations per year. Okay, so f help me understand. Would that be like cruising down the interstate with that car that's going to conk out in 13 years? Oh, at say 50 miles an hour? Or is that more like running around at 15 miles an hour? Or that's just not, it doesn't sound like a very it's, high it's rate. It's not, and I would not expect that it has attenuated hardly at all. It's just about as deadly now as it was hmm. a year ago. 
the early reports about you know 15% death rate, that was never true. It has about a 3% death rate. Scary and sad. And eventually, a year or two or three or ten from now, it'll be about as deadly as the common you know, annual flu. But right now, it is more deadly than the flu, especially for older people. It's not zero deadly for younger people, especially for older people. And so we're hoping that genetic entropy will apply and this thing will fall apart slowly, eventually. And that's why we're tracking it carefully and counting up mutations over time. Now, aren't there opinions throughout the science field, the scientific community that mutations could mean that it becomes more threatening and it can cause more harms to people? Yes. The big new mutant virus that everyone's talking about that came out of England. I just saw a part. It's arrived in New York. Oh no, it's in South Africa. Oh no. See, the thing is, when I read headlines like that, to be honest, I don't believe them because it sounds like sensationalism. It is sensationalism. It's also built on a misconception. The misconception is that more mutations equals better evolutionary fitness. Genetic entropy says the opposite. More mutations equals more decrepit. Yeah, generally people do believe that that's the case, but it does not, that is not very strongly supported. No, evolution says that you need mutations and mutations are the engine of evolution itself. But when you actually look at it numerically, it doesn't work that way. I'm very happy that that's true. But we still got a lot of newspaper reporters, a lot of scientists, a lot of public figures saying this thing is mutating with a hint that it's going to kill us all because it's going to learn how to kill people. It doesn't have a mind of its own. It, it it's doesn't. It's not self-willed and determined to put us to an end. That's true. It's called reification. When you make something alive that's not alive. And um, scientists do it all the time because it's shorthand. It's just easier to say it that way than to say, you know, a 10 sentences to explain that a random mutation might make this thing different. Mm. Now, you can't say it wants to because that's, that's ridiculous because, you know, viruses can't want anything. <laughs> no. But this new virus now, this, this new, new mutation that appeared in England is now spreading quickly. It does make it more infectious. This is true. And you would expect such things to arise because anything that's more infectious will spread faster. Therefore, more people will catch it. Therefore, it's going to become the dominant strain. But just because it spreads faster doesn't mean it's more deadly. In fact, it might be less deadly. There might be a, even though it, it has one mutation that does something positive, it probably is a bad mutation, it actually does something negative. Most mutations are a trade-off. Is it, is it one of those things where it may not look like it causes harm so much now, but it has adverse effects that take a long time to show up? Or Possibly. Is that really unknowable? It, it's maybe unknowable. There are very few mutations that are truly neutral. And usually beneficial mutations are not beneficial. Something like sickle cell anemia is a wonderfully beneficial mutation if you're in a malaria-infested swamp. But that mutation is really bad for people. People who carry sickle cell trait are not as healthy as other people. They're hurt. It's painful. Their lives are shorter. But carrying that trait means you're much less likely to die of malaria. And so it's beneficial in scare quotes. And a lot of other a- adaptations are like that. It's, it's, it's the um, burning your bridges sort of an adaptation thing. You know, hey, we fought off the, the, we fought off the, the foreign army. Ha ha, we won, we won. And it's like, yeah, but you killed all the cows and burned all the farms in the process. You're going to die now. It's, uh, not burning bridges. It's the scorched earth policy is what I meant. It's the scorched earth policy of biology. That for an organism to survive, it's easier to cut off your leg than to evolve wings 
It's easier to break something <laughs> than to make something brand new that doesn't exist. And almost all the adaptations we see in the natural world are downhill. You know, you're losing your color. You're losing your eyes. You're getting smaller. You're, something is changing. Something's breaking. But in the process of breaking, it allows you to get into a new niche or survive a new threat that you didn't have before. I just watched a documentary mm. on the, the Black Death. And it's been 10 or 15 years old, so the technology genetically wasn't very advanced, but they were looking at one particular marker, and they showed that this particular marker allowed people to survive the Black Death. And if you didn't have it, you probably died. If you had it, you might have even have survived the infection. You might not have even gotten infected at all. Mm. And it's a classic thing. It's also something that helps people survive HIV, interestingly. Well, remind us what a marker is. It, uh, it's a, a genetic mutation. Oh, so the mutation would actually just be the kind of thing that worked out for your benefit. Yeah, yeah. It's a change in the letters, and it's very common in Europe, but in the ancient graves, it almost didn't exist. And after the Black Death, it's very common at Black Death because those are the people who survived. But this thing is not good for you. It actually confers upon you some issues, and yet, dude, if you can survive the Black Death, who cares about those other issues? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this uh, is I'm, true. I'm expecting that this fast-spreading virus is not as robust as the original, but I don't know yet because I, I haven't actually cracked into it yet. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. Okay. So going back then to the paper then, what are you piecing together? What is the story? Well... There was a Chinese dissident who was making the talk show rounds last spring, last summer, uh, named Dr. Yan, and she and her team claimed that coronavirus was deliberately engineered, or that um, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, was deliberately engineered and deliberately released by the Chinese government. And based on that, since I already had all this coronavirus data and I'd already been sticking my nose into this, this data set for so many hours, I said, hey, you know what? I can probably test every one of her hypotheses. So we took their papers, which were never officially published. They just got put up on a preprint server and I'm, I'm sure no one will ever publish them, but anyone can read them if they want. And I went through all of their claims, claim after claim after claim after claim. And I said, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And that's a misunderstanding. And in the end, I can honestly say that I don't think anything they say is right. The strongest point they made was that it looks like a relative of the COVID-19 virus was sequenced much earlier than the Chinese lab says it was. And they changed the name and never told anyone. And then oh. after the outbreak started, they said, oh, we noticed a slight similarity between this and another virus in our database that we had never fully sequenced. So we sequenced it entirely, and here it is. And it's called rat TG13, and it is um, 96% identical to the, the, SARS corona, the SARS-2 coronavirus. I'm not sure what to call this thing. Because like, you can't say SARS hyphen capital C lowercase o capital V hyphen 2. I mean, what is that? So we've been just calling it SARS-2. That's what we've been calling it. And yet this thing had to have been sequenced earlier because in a prior paper, they had the other sequence name in this phylogenetic tree comparing all these different viruses. So they had to have the sequence in able to make that comparison. And so there is massive paperwork problems. And there's no way anyone in the Western world is ever going to know. And probably no one in China actually knows except one or two people. China has this firewall of information. And what they give us, you can't trust anything. And so we don't know. I have no idea 
if this other virus sequence is real. I have no idea where it came from, though I do believe it came from a particular cave back in 2013. Some um, workers in a mine were tasked with shoveling up vast amounts of bat guano, and the first three people got sick, and they replaced them with three other people, and they got sick. And of those six people, three of them died. And they died mm. with SARS-like symptoms. So the lab in China went down there and over two different, about a month, and then another six months later, another month, they sampled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bat anuses. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Hold still a little bat while I stick you up with the Q-tip. Um, and they, sequent, uh, they, they sampled piles and piles and piles of bat guano on the floor of the cave. And they brought it back to their lab, and nobody in the world knows how many samples they have or what the sequences, the viruses that they collected were. And we'll never know, because China's not going to tell us. And so here I am trying to study this beast, and the origins are shrouded in mystery and misinformation. And that makes it very difficult. And yet I want to mm. know. I want to know where this yeah. thing came from. Is it natural or is it man-made? And as a scientist, we're supposed to be able to ask open-ended questions like that. But politically, if you mention the, the, uh, the idea that this could have been made in the lab, you will be shouted down. The most important paper that came out in Science or Nature last February said, clearly this thing has a, uh, a natural origin. And then they proceeded to make a whole bunch of logical errors and false deductions. But this came down from on high and a whole entire scientific world linked arms. They see that, see that it has a natural origin, it has a natural origin. But wait, wait a second. How do you know that? And so I've been studying. And one thing I did uh, last week and this week, I looked at the history of genetic manipulation of the original SARS virus. Now, SARS came out in 2003, started in China, uh, made it as far as Canada, maybe seven or 800 people died. And it just kind of went away because SARS wasn't very good at infecting people. Unlike this new coronavirus, SARS-2, the first SARS was really bad at infecting people. But if you got infected, it, it had a very high death rate and it was really scary. Well, it's very, very interesting history of this because if you think about you know, biowarfare or if you think about evolution and what changes an evolutionary scientist might think could happen, the scientists used a very strange justification to proceed with some very dangerous experiments. They said to the U.S. government, Hey, uh, Uncle Sam, um, we need to know what mutations will make this deadly because we need to be watching for those mutations out in the wild. So if we see this mutation arise, then we can, know, you know, we can take preventive action against it. And Uncle Sam said, okay, here's a few million dollars. Figure out what makes it deadly. And so what they did is they took the virus and genetically modified it to make it deadly. Wait, that's really stupid. You shouldn't be doing <laughs> that. Why are you making something that can kill you know, 50% of humanity? That, that is not smart. And yet they did. No, no. Yes. And when the, you know, a whole bunch of papers are published, one, one paper came out from a lab at um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Dr. Barrick is the guy who's, who's doing most of these, these studies and his, his team. And they used the phrase chimeric, which means they took two different viruses, cut them apart and put them back together again and mixed the viral genomes to make it more deadly. Now they'd already been doing that before, but this particular paper caused a firestorm in scientific world. I mean, there was I mean, people shouting each other scientific conferences, that kind of a firestorm. And the US government under Obama put a moratorium on it, says you can't do this anymore. Too dangerous. 
Meanwhile, we had already been working with the Chinese, and we'd already given them a lot of money for their Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the lady that had gone to that cave that I talked about, or the the mine shaft, and sampled all that those bat feces, well, she had been working in the U.S. and she had been working in the Netherlands, and she was very well integrated with all these people, knew all the technologies, all the techniques. She had been doing them herself, and she's over there in China, and they start sending her millions of dollars. So the U.S. government, through grants, was sending them tons of money to continue the work on that was started here in the U.S. And this is so mm. political. I mean, I, I see hot potatoes falling yeah. from the ceiling right now. I mean, this is, you can't talk about this. I mean, think about the American yeah. government, right? I mean, the outgoing administration labeled this the Chinese virus. And it is. It, it, I don't know. I, I can't prove it. And I don't, I don't believe it necessarily because I can't believe something I can't prove. But there is pretty good indication that this came from... What, how, what do you mean by the Chinese virus? You mean it originated from China? Or do you mean that it was, do you believe under your, your viewpoint that it originated in a laboratory in China? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But the outgoing administration labeled it the Chinese virus. And it might have been a political move, okay. or maybe they knew something I don't know, which I don't think so, because I, I think I got a pretty good handle on the scientific aspects of this. Um, it's still relegated to conspiracy theory, anyone who believes that this came out of a laboratory. Because there is no evidence for it. And I will tell you, there is no evidence for that. But there's also no evidence that has a natural origin. There's no evidence either way. Okay, yeah. I see your point, yeah. And so because there's no evidence either way, we don't know where it came from. We don't know the source. We don't have a patient zero. You know, people suspect this one person who disappeared and probably died. We don't know anything. And so we have to be able to ask these open questions. So it is taboo to talk about a laboratory origin of this virus. And yet... We can't discount the possibility because the things that they were doing with these viruses in laboratories was taking the parts of the virus that prevent it from being able to infect humans and taking a part of a virus that can infect humans and putting that part in the other virus. Now this new virus can infect humans. There's one particular uh, thing that sticks off of our cells called the ACE2 receptor. That is what SARS-2 grabs onto. If you remember MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that uses a totally different thing to grab onto our cells. But SARS and SARS-2 use the ACE2 receptor. Fine. So they made it so it could stick to our cells a a thousand times better than the original SARS. It's funny because SARS-2 sticks to our cells about a thousand times better than the original SARS. But just sticking to our cells, that doesn't get you into the cell. This is a really weird, but a lot of viruses require themselves to be cut in half. And our cells do that. We have a protein called furin. It's a protease. It, it actually is a protein cutting enzyme. It is especially abundant on our lung cells. So if we get a foreign protein in there, these proteins that stick off our cells, they'll chop up this protein. Well, the viruses use that as a strategy. After the coronavirus sticks to our cells, one of our furin molecules will cut it, cut the spike protein in half. The second half of the spike protein sticks to our cell membrane, and then the the, our cell will, will pull in and pull the virus in with it. And now the virus is inside the cell. If the virus can't be cut at that location, it can't infect human cells. Even if it can stick to a human cell, it can't get inside. And so they've been, pra- they've been playing around with the original SARS by sticking something there that didn't exist in SARS before. There's a, a, a very characteristic right. sequence with lots of arginines in it. And if you put that in the middle 
right where this thing has to be cut. If you stick extra letters in there, then our proteins will see that and cut it and boom. And now you have something that sticks to the cells and can infect the cell. That's exactly what they were doing with SARS between 2003 and 2019. They're getting very good at it. They could do it seamlessly. They could do it without leaving any evidence that anyone had cut anything. And they've been doing this that for well over a decade. And now SARS-2 comes out. SARS was not pre-adapted to human cells. MERS was not pre-adapted to human cells. SARS-2 is absolutely pre-adapted to human cells. It works really, really, really well in human cells. And it has all the features that they were adding to the original SARS. So maybe they were right, though. Maybe they said, hey, uh, government, we need to be studying what's going to come in the future. We need to make these modifications. And oh, look, here comes one right now. It has those same modifications. See how smart we were? We saw this coming. Mm. Or <laughs> someone was monkeying around with this virus and it got out of the laboratory. Yeah. What is a more likely scenario? I'm afraid <sighs> to say that the more likely scenario is a laboratory release. Now, no one can prove it. And it, it, it's just suspicion, but it's a smoking gun. Sure. And because yeah. it, I mean, it just fits the motif, it's exactly the type of thing that they were doing. But then again, these viruses, they rearrange themselves all the time. You can't actually make a family tree of these coronaviruses. It doesn't work because bits and pieces of different family lineages are found in different viruses because they've rearranged themselves so much. They, they've looked at bats and they study a, a single bat and they say, wow, this bat has two or three different coronaviruses in it. Oh, look at this one right here. This one obviously is a recombination between that coronavirus and this coronavirus over here. So when an organism is infected by more than one virus at the same time, the pieces can rearrange and make a brand new virus. Oh. Yeah. Well, and you were saying, can I, can I add, something that you taught me was that there's a whole classification or family, not sure the scientific term for it, for coronaviruses. So a coronavirus. There is. Okay. So then it's sort of like we're describing Coca-Cola versus Pepsi versus all of their knockoffs, but they're all a co they're all a cola, sort of like that. Yes. Yes. Except if you had a, a party beverage where someone mixed Sprite and Coke and Dr. Pepper in the same cup and handed it to you <laughs> and say, and they said, okay, now what company made this? You wouldn't be able to tell what company made it because right. different companies made different parts of it. And that's the problem with- that, On that note then, yeah, there was another thought I had earlier. In, in general, when you're looking at the genetic data for a virus, are there no real tells that something is synthetic, synthetic or lab-created versus being natural? Well, there are some tells. In certain experiments, I mean, anything that I did back in, you know, I stopped in 2003, there would have been a marker there. There would have been a, a site where a biological enzyme can cut my DNA. So I use bacterial enzymes to cut DNA. And we did it all the time. When I pulled DNA out of corals, I used primers in PCR that would stick to different places in my coral DNA. But one end of the primer, I knew it had like, you know, CGAAAC. And I knew that Echo R1, I'm, I'm messing this up. I don't remember actually what Echo R1 cuts, but that enzyme would cut at that location. And I knew that I had a piece of DNA that was going to put into my bacteria that could also be cut with Echo R1. And if I cut that piece of DNA and cut my DNA, I can mix them together in a solution and get them to stick together. And when I sequenced my, my DNA later on, I'd always have that Echo R1 side at the beginning and at the end of my piece of DNA. 
And there are thousands of different enzymes you can use. Basically, if you take any six letters of DNA, you can find a bacterial enzyme that will cut those six letters or five letters, sometimes eight letters, sometimes four. But basically, any six letter set you can cut. And so you see these restriction enzyme sites a lot in biologically engineered organisms. In fact, when um, we noticed that there was another uh, green fish on the market that didn't look like our competitor's fish, and it was a little skinnier. <laughs> we said, we think that that's, got, that's a Singapore fish. That guy's in Singapore, and they got it in. How'd they get it into the States? They're not regulated to ship it into the States. But the customs officials didn't realize that these are Singapore fish and not Taiwan fish. The Taiwan fish were approved. The Singapore wasn't. Anyway, they got here. And so we bought some of those fish, and we, we took a whole punch and, and snipped a little piece of fin and pulled the DNA out and added restriction enzymes and cut the DNA because we knew we know what, uh, what they had used. And then we got it into the plasmid and we sequenced it. And sure enough, that fish was the other people's fish. It wasn't supposed to be in the United States, but that's a long story. Point is, we knew what to do and we know what to look for because we knew they were using these restriction enzymes, but they don't use them anymore. You don't need that. You can take two different sequences of DNA and you can merge them together. You can splice them together basically anywhere you want now. And so genetic engineering doesn't necessarily leave a trail. And that's an issue with SARS-2. There's no obvious trail. Mm. So either it's natural or it's man-made. And you can't tell the difference except for one part. And this is the, the, the killer. It obviously is an amalgamation of other viruses. There's a stretch of this that is almost 100% identical, an important stretch, right? Right in the place where it sticks to the human cells, almost 100% identical to a coronavirus found in pangolins. The rest of it looks like coronaviruses found in bats. So either a bat virus and a pangolin virus recombined, or someone took the pangolin one and stuck it into a bat one because they already knew the pangolin version can stick to human cells and the bat ones can't. Mm. We don't know. But that insert, that four amino acid insert, right at the place where it is cut, there is not a single coronavirus that has those four letters inserted at that location. Lots of laboratory ones had it inserted. <laughs> but none of them in nature. Now, MERS was a problem because MERS could be cut by furin at that location, but it didn't have an insert. It was right at that place. There was a couple of mutations that, that made it PRRK or something like that. And that, that enzyme loves to cut there. So it could cut at that spot, but it didn't have an insert. It just had some mutations in the right spot. So SARS-2 doesn't have mutations in the right spot. It has actually four letters added that are the perfect cut spot. Wow. That seems like evidence to me. It looks very artificial. Now, there have been some papers saying, oh, we found one in nature. See that? They can happen in nature. And I look at it and it's not true. I don't know how this paper ever got published. And I, I've actually seen it cited in other people. See that? We know they come from nature. And I'm looking at the second paper. It's like, it's not true. What they did was they found a sort of like a PRRA, some sort of like a RR something sequence. And they, they, they made an alignment. They added a big gap there. The gap was spanned by SARS-2, PRRAs, and that gap. And they took this other sequence and they moved the letters around so they could fill up that gap, but they caused gaps elsewhere. So they filled up that four-letter gap by making four other gaps in other places and pushing the letters to the left and right to fill up the gap. So it's not an insert. There's no extra letters there. And they actually failed to show that this can come from nature. So to date... We've never seen one like this. 
And yet the scary thing is that we don't know what's in the database in the Chinese laboratory. We don't sure. know how many sequences they collected. We don't know if they sequenced them. We don't know anything. They could be sitting on a whole lot of nothing, or they could have a whole array of viruses with all these different features that no one knows. And so I'm speaking ignorance. All I can say is I've never seen a natural virus that has that insert. And yet I don't know anything. Because I mean, in science, really, it's really scary to be a scientist and to make a pronouncement based on ignorance. And yet it's all we can do. <laughs> and you, you've, you've seen it. You've, yeah. you've heard scientists say, we have no evidence to suggest that. Okay, right. great. You have no evidence. That doesn't mean anything. That's a nonsensical statement. Except if you want to say that we have no evidence to suggest that polar bears can be pink. This is true. <laughs> but the thing is, you've seen so many polar bears, there's a pretty good chance there are no po pink polar bears in the world. Now, you can't possibly ever know it for a fact because you would have to have a human being looking at every single polar bear on the planet at the same time. Okay, everyone see white? Yep, no pink ones. It has to be cataloged and documented. You can't prove the universal negative or disprove the universal negative, whatever that works. But in this case, we actually have thousands of coronavirus sequences and zero have that insert at that location. I guess it is more like the polar bear thing. That's pretty good. It'd be like looking at thousands. Okay, it's very similar then. Yeah. We have enough information to know that it's vanishingly, uh, we have a vanishingly small possibility of being wrong. Huh. It's hard, man. It's, this is difficult. It's so easy when you like you sequence a piece of DNA and then say, here's my piece of DNA and you publish this, the publish a sequence and it goes to the gene bank and then you, you write a paper on this new features you found in the DNA. That, that's easy. This coronavirus stuff, oh, I'm pulling my hair out. In fact, that, the paper <laughs> that I'm writing, um, I spent four hours today just formatting references, just wow. the references. Now, there's not even 100 references, but I had to look in the document make sure it was cited correctly, look at the, what we said, go check the paper, make sure that it, it actually said what we're claiming it says. Then I had to pull the, the author and the title and the journal and the issue and the page numbers. And then the, D, the um, DOI, document something. I don't remember what DOI stands for, but every single paper in, in my citation list has a DOI and a hyperlink. So a live hyperlink, so you can actually find that paper if it's publicly available. If not, I just hyperlink to the, the front page for the paper, and at least you can read the abstract. That was grueling. I mean, I was... I was oh, yeah, I'm sure. At the end of the day, I'm like, I'm done, man. I can't work anymore. But it, it was hard just to do that. <laughs> that's, that's the other thing about being a scientist, and this is what kills a lot of scientists. You have to be exacting in your detail. You can, I wish more of us were that way. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I, we need artsy fartsy people. We need people that are just like, no, I'm an artist. And no, 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 no. I can appreciate the scientific method. We could learn something. I just, Rob, I think we just discovered what makes this striking the balance between the light and the dark. What, you and me? You're the light and I'm the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I bring to the table the creative method and you bring to the table the scientific method. <laughs> I wouldn't oh. wish I wouldn't wish my skill set on anybody. I have no I idea. I wish mine either. I, I envy yours. <laughs> really? Yes. I feel like I'm OCD because uh, I go, going into it when I was. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm focusing on these minutia, and these minutia become my world, and I get lost in them. 
And it's hard to come up for air sometimes. And I realize, you know, I've been sitting still for eight hours. I haven't even moved. I got to get up and wiggle a little bit here. I do that too often. And yet that's the type of work that has led to all scientific advances is maniacal paying attention to details. That's what the life of a scientist is. And I understand why some people go crazy trying to do this. I'm sure. Yeah. So we have an issue with coronaviruses. There is another similar sequence I talked about a little while ago, the rat G13. It comes from... Uh, <laughs> rat G13. Well, it's RA... It sounds like a license plate. That's the initials of the bat genus and species. G is Guangdong, China. 13 is a collection year. That's, that's why it's named that. The original name wasn't that, but that's the new name. It is very yeah, okay. similar to SARS-2. In fact, it's got about 1,100, maybe 1,200 uh, single-letter differences at about 30,000. So they're not, you know, identical. But if SARS-2 is picking up 20 to 30 mutations a year and 1,200 mutations, say each one in each lineage does 600 per, well, 600 divided by 30, it's only 20 years. These things had a common ancestor only about two decades ago. That's not enough time to develop a thing that sticks very good to human cells, a place that's very good at being cut in half. There's a couple of other things that are, that are very important for this thing to be infectious and deadly in humans. How do those things arise after only two decades? It's called the waiting time problem. And the waiting time problem is a mathematical problem for all sorts of evolutionary ideas. It's not enough to say that, you know, a mutation will arise, you know, once in a population of humans this generation. Well, so what? Most all mutations are lost. Most people don't have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And even if they do, the probability of your great-grandchild inheriting that one letter of your DNA is pretty tiny because you have two copies of DNA in you and the grandchild can only get two copies himself. And if you have a great-grandchild, he's got what? Two, four. He's got eight great-grandparents. The probability of him inheriting that letter from you is only one out of four. And it's one out of 16 when you go to the next generation. And so even if, let's say like... um. Let's say I inherited the Adonis mutation and I am really good looking and all the girls love me. I can, I can imagine this, right? And so <laughs> I had this Adonis mutation and it's a very beneficial mutation. I might have lots of kids and they might have lots of kids and they might have lots of kids. It might spread through the population and all of a sudden everyone is good looking just like me. Man, that sounded horrible. Anyway, wow. most mutations aren't like that. Most of them don't confer any great advantage. They're little teeny differences. And those little teeny differences are irrelevant as far as selection is concerned. And they just, they just disappear at random quickly. Something like 99.999% of all new mutations are lost. And so the waiting time problem is not how long does it take for the mutation to appear? It is how long does it take for the mutation to appear enough times that it's not lost? And in a human-like population, if you need three or four different mutations to appear, that will take longer than the age of the earth, even in the evolutionary model. You can do one mutation in 100,000 years. You can do that. Yeah, so maybe like lactose persistence or blue eyes or something like that. You can do that. Yep, sure, no problem. But if you need three or four, you're talking all of human history. If you need five or six, you're talking impossible mathematically. Oh, wow. Now apply those thoughts to this virus that has a common ancestor only two or three decades ago, and you see the mathematical difficulty. Because... This virus, if it was in a bat, it would instantly die because it can't infect bat cells. It's designed to infect human cells. This virus had to appear some in some other species and then instantly jump to people. 
in a high concentration because one virus never makes someone sick. You need a lot of viruses. One virus, the chance of that virus making it past your mucus and past your saliva and going, you know, not being swallowed and actually landing in your mouth and not on your hair and, and on and on and on. One virus is nothing. Millions of viruses are something. I mean, most, most of the time you need like a thousand viruses to have a good chance of getting sick. And a million viruses is almost guaranteed for you to get sick. But one, the chance of you getting sick is essentially zero. So something had to be breeding this virus, and yet there's no evidence of this thing existing prior to December of 2019. <sighs> now, some wow. antibody work has been done um, in blood in the U.S. in that December, and they, they found it. And some uh, well, no, sewer samples in, in the U.S., and I think blood samples in Italy back in September of 2019. Oh, wow, that changes everything. Maybe it was circulating for longer than people realized. Maybe it didn't come from a laboratory. Maybe it started in Italy and it first detected in China. Who knows? There's so many unopened, uh, unanswered questions we don't know. But there is zero evidence of this thing existing before 2019. And that is a giant mystery again. And again, it points to a recent origin which points towards a laboratory, not to long-term evolution in the human population. I was going to say that points a finger. <sighs> But when you have a world filled with billions of people and different personal interests, politically uh, advantageous interests, I can understand why we're not going to get 100% of the people on the same page. Oh, no. And uh, agree to come out with the, the good facts and the whole story. Well, I remember a few years ago discussing with a friend the difference between the truth and facts. As Christians, he was explaining that the truth re, really revolves around the essence of all the traits of God and the Word of God, His message, His character, His purpose, what the creation is really all about and what He is about. And what has happened is historically, mankind has tried to replace the truth with lies. And the first uh, temptation, the beginning of the first sin for Adam and Eve began with a lie. So idolatry is one of the most well-known historical examples of sin that sweeps through whole nations and destroys their, their character and you know, uh, takes them away from God. So when you read the Bible, it talks about how God was using the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, in the Exodus, and he gives them his, his laws. And when he's giving them the original 10 laws, one of them is, uh, you will have no other gods before me. And then there's a lot of the books of the Old Testament uh, that circle around the idea of idolatry. And the more you learn about spiritual things from a Christian point of view, even if you're not a Christian, you can understand and appreciate philosophically that things that are important to you but are lies don't represent the truth. They're still, they're still just really important lies, and the truth sets people free. So that suggests you had to be free from something. What were you in bondage to? What are you enslaved by? You're enslaved by the lies. They're your, your fi false idealizations, your idols, your false gods. And nowadays there is a lot of this misinformation pushed around because 
like in the movies, it's popular in the news for people to shout, you can't handle the truth. And (laughs) all we want is the truth. And don't tell me that. Just give me the truth. And what they're really saying is, just give me the facts. But they are confusing facts with truth. From a uh, from my perspective, the truth is God and everything that encompasses Him. What you're asking for, ladies and gentlemen, are the facts, the accurate facts. And facts are not related to opinions. <laughs> it reminds me of this very great joke in a Pixar movie, Inside Out, when I think uh, it was Bongo was his name. Uh, the imaginary friend of the girl Riley says to the character called Joy, well, uh, Bongo says to the character Joy, um, uh, they're, they're on a, they're on a train and they knock over some boxes and out of the box spills out one box labeled facts and another box spills labeled opinions. (laughs) And all these blocks come tumbling out and they get mixed up and Joy, the character Joy, is like, oh no. And then Bongo says, ah, it's no big deal. They get mixed up all the time anyway. And he just like picks them up and he starts putting them back in the boxes, but not thinking about, you know, with no mind to which block he put into which box. (laughs) So the thing is, is that with the scientific method, you're not usually focusing on truth with a capital T, but you're focusing on the facts and not the opinions. And it's important to know your terms and what is what, and you're trying to develop accurate opinions based on accurate facts. And the only reason any of this works is because of the foundation of the capital truth underneath it all to make sense of any of this stuff. And that is the only way that, you know... You have your head screwed on right, Rob. It's obvious from the circumstance, setting aside our fears and our worries about the political nature of something like this that can cloud our judgment. If you look boldly at the circumstance on a foundation of truth, then you cannot be conclusive. But it is fair to say that the evidence points in the direction you're going. Well, we shall see. I'm going if to try you're this. just if you're being fair and accurate about those facts. If you're being fair and accurate and honest and open, and you put all your cards on the table, you can carefully walk through this, hopefully without stepping on a landmine. You know, like when you're, um, you know, all these TV shows where you're in court and they said, you know, hold up, you know, raise your right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, that's because you can say true facts that are lies. Or you can, if you omit certain facts, you can totally change a story. You have to tell the whole truth. You can't just selectively say a few things and then, you know, forget to say, oh yeah, well, I was actually there at the murder scene. You know, (laughs) yeah, I saw him run out the building. Well, wait a second. You were in the building. You forgot to mention that. You know, you have to say the whole truth. And that's what we have to do here uh, in science also. Something else, I I just watched a a YouTube video. One of my friends sent it to me and he thought this was a good video until I pointed out how awful it was. There was a, you know, evolutionary... um, global warming scientists being grilled in Congress. And this congressman was, you know, conservative congressman. And he said, uh, he, he got the scientists to say that, you know, the world will be warming based on mathematics. 
And he goes, oh, yeah, but um, and he he got the scientists to admit that the earth wobbles on its axis and therefore that causes an ice age. And and the man said, and that's totally natural, right? And the scientist said, yes, no further questions. Boom. And he cut him off right there. So you turkey, you cut the scientists off before the scientists <laughs> could say yes. And the same science that tells us the earth will be warming over the next 10 years is the same science that tells us why that ice age happened. But all the science, all the, the politician wanted to hear was it's natural. And so he was able to actually do a misfact, a mistruth based on selective information. Now, he yeah, could have let the yeah. scientists finish and then say, I disagree with you, sir. That's fine. Or I don't think that, that the little bit of carbon dioxide we're pumping in the atmosphere is going to have that big a difference. That's fine, too. But he was able to go back to his, his supporters and say, see that? This scientist says that these are natural cycles. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Oh, Rob, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a lot to think about. Yeah, I think so. Thanks so much for joining us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting, and I know I certainly did in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. And if you want to dig deeper into all the topics that Rob laid out, you can find links to anything that we discussed in the show notes on the website. And in the future, we'll get a hold of a link to that paper maybe rob is that possible when that paper comes out we will definitely add a link and okay. we'll be talking about it also so very good so there, uh, any of the show notes that you're interested in are available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 40 the show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone and you should also check out biblical genetics which is rob's other project biblical genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube and MeWe, so wherever you happen to find yourself on the internet these days, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments with Rob. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And you have been listening to Equinox.